You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Frank McGee, NBC News in Washington. This is the second in a series of programs unmatched in history. Never have so many people seen the major candidates for President of the United States at the same time. And never, until this series, have Americans seen the candidates in face-to-face exchange. It's true to say that the first presidential debate occurring between two candidates actually running for president is 1960, and that's Kennedy and Nixon in a series of four debates between September and October 1960. But it's also true that there was another type of presidential debate in 1956 when Dwight Eisenhower was running against Adelaide Stevenson, the Republican and the Democrat. There was a debate between Eleanor Roosevelt and Margaret Chase Smith, Roosevelt representing the Democratic candidate. That there can be no question in the people's minds of the failure of our policies in the Near East, which have now uh, resulted in our making NATO weaker, our alliance with our allies. Smith, who was a senator, speaking for the Republicans. Senator Smith, I assume that you believe the Republican candidate is going to win, but I wonder what you think the chances are of his taking a Republican House and Senate with him in view of the results in your own state. Yes, I do believe that President Eisenhower will win by a good vote. I wouldn't venture a guess on the House and Senate, Mr. Sylvester. Maine was a little different. We had a very popular Democratic governor who was running for re-election. And there were several other reasons why Maine went it as did, but it will go for Eisenhower. For 1960, it was agreed on, and there was agreement from both the Kennedy and Nixon camps, that there would be four scheduled debates. One of them, and this has come up recently in politics, would be done using a unique split-screen technology because Nixon was in Los Angeles and Kennedy was in New York and their schedules wouldn't allow anything else. Unlike the first two programs, however, the two candidates will not be sharing the same platform. In New York, the Democratic presidential nominee, Senator John F. Kennedy, separated by 3,000 miles in a Los Angeles studio, the Republican presidential nominee, Vice President Richard M. Nixon. So they used identical sets. Um, Each had a monitor showing the face of the other person they were debating with. For a lot of people, it was they, they did say New York and LA and Los Angeles on the TV, but it looked just like they were in the same room. That's come up recently because there's been a contention that there's never been a virtual debate, and of course that was a debate that was virtual. And it's just one of those things that uh, at, at the simultaneous to this, I've been working on another uh, story about presidential campaigns. I'm working on a lot of them, and that there was actually plans for a fifth debate 
And you can't make this stuff up. One of the reasons a fifth debate doesn't happen, among the many reasons, and it's not the central reason, is that actually they wanted a virtual debate and it could not be arranged. A second one could not be arranged. It was the first election with 50 states. And Richard Nixon is running against John F. Kennedy. They're both representing younger, dynamic forces within their party. That's one thing it's easy to forget, that Nixon isn't that much older than Kennedy. So Kennedy's definitely the young Democrat, and he's a new force. He's defeated at the convention. You know, Lyndon Johnson picked him up as a VP candidate. He's defeated Adelaide Stevenson. So it's not the old Democratic Party associated with the two losses that just occurred in 1952 and 1956. This is a new party with Kennedy leading it. There's 50 states. Nixon insists in his nominating speech that he's going to visit all 50 states. Political consultants now look at this decision as a stunt, as a waste of time. Some of the states are going to have no swing. They're going to be either Republican or Democrat. There was no reason, but Nixon made it a commitment in his nominating speech. There was pressure to show that he's a representative of the incumbent party, that his party was energetic. That he And if it wasn't, he could make it so. He was under attack from the Democrats that the second term in Eisenhower had not done enough and they were losing ground to the Soviet Union. He starts campaigning and one thing that he tries to do is to make up ground. It's like, okay, the 50 states is actually a lot. And Kennedy's not doing this. He can campaign, focus on like New Jersey or Illinois, states that are actually in contention for the election. So Nixon tries to get him out of the way early. And that's in August. His campaign managers start worrying. Sleep-deprived, stressed, seven speeches a day. And then one of these freak little accident occurs where Nixon bangs his knee into a car door. It gets inflamed. It gets infected. And he ends up in Walter Reed Medical Center, the vice president, from the campaign trail to a hospital bed. The Democratic campaign, very nice, sends VP candidate Lyndon Johnson over. Kennedy is still taking his show to the road. And is gaining grounds. Nixon is ahead of the polls in August, and Kennedy starts to close that gap. But one thing about the polls in 1960, and you can look at the Gallup polls. They don't take polls like every every week as they do today, but there are polls over the course of that campaign. I mean, it really always is a close thing. There's uh, pretty much some disappointment with the second-term Eisenhower administration. There's a small recession. About 1.6% negative growth between 1960 and 1961. Most of it happening quarter two, quarter three, quarter four of 1960. You know, is it lots of people unemployed? No, it's not going to get more than 7%. But for that time, it's kind of shocking. In any case, there's these little things going on. Also, the U2 incident where Eisenhower's administration initially says, you know, we didn't send any spy over Russia, and then Russia produces the pilot. There's some embarrassments. Cuba, Cuba and Castro, you know, starts from being unfriendly to the United States to being openly communist and aligned with the Soviet Union, 90 miles from our shore. This time, who lost Cuba is on the agenda. So to present uh, Kennedy as simply an underdog and Nixon as the the front doesn't really do justice. Um, All through that year of 1960, the polls are so close. There's very few points in the Gallup poll where you're really beyond the margin of error. But nonetheless, Nixon is up in August, and he's down in September. And a lot of people blame what happened next, which is the series of television debates. Nixon is overworking. His staff's concerned. He gets the flu. Uh, He's just recovering when the first debate happens. He also doesn't get a lot of sleep. He gets the 
to his hotel room at 1 a.m. He's negotiating with a labor group that's very contentious the day of. Meanwhile, uh, Kennedy's in California campaigning, gets adequate rest. He's just tan. He's kind of tan anyway. Some doctors are going to point to it could be the disease that he had, um, Addison's disease. But nonetheless, uh, for telegenic purposes, it's advantage Kennedy. So the first debate, and both candidates are offered makeup from the network. And they have an expert that they've flown in to do this right. Nixon, you know, as we said, looks tired. He has a noticeable five o'clock shadow. Kennedy says no to the makeup. Nixon also says no. But he does realize that he has an issue. So he sends an aide to go to the store and get uh, what's called lazy shave foam. And lazy shave is kind of like a pancake makeup that's in a foam can. And what can possibly go wrong here? You're going to have hot television lights, beads of sweat, Nixon's perspiring. And, you know, it could be overstated when you watch it. It's, It's not so obvious. But yes, at least in comparison to Kennedy, Nixon looks a little bit, particularly around the cheeks. There's just some dark jowls, as as you might say. Um, his mother calls him up after the debate. This is from Nixon's memoir and says, "Is something wrong? You look sick." Uh, Bob Dole is watching at this time, and he hears it on the radio when he's driving in the car and thinks Nixon did very well. He watches the clips the next day and thinks he looks terrible. A young Bill Clinton's watching as well and thinks Kennedy obviously won the debate. It's a common perception. Uh, There were even some surveys that said radio listeners thought that Nixon won the debate. Uh, TV viewers thought Kennedy did. But some of those are actually not following good statistical methodology. And the questions weren't asked right after the debate. In any case, something happens here. Kennedy gains political support, at least, and kind of a perception advantage from this debate. And the polls move him up and Gallup polls 3%. It's never a blowout in those polls. Nixon does come back. In the second debate, he's shaven, he's rested, he's in a navy blue suit, he's well-prepared. A four-day regimen of rich milkshakes to add to my weight, he says. <laughs> and he pounces on Kennedy. There also isn't any question but that the free people of Cuba, the people who want to be free, are going to be supported and that they will attain their freedom. No, Cuba is not lost. And I don't think this kind of defeatist talk by Senator Kennedy helps the situation one bit. Kennedy's still good, but he's not as good in the second debate. Senator Kennedy, would you care to comment? In the first place, I never suggested that Cuba was lost except for the president. And at one point, he has Kennedy mumbling something about beans. The experts say that Nixon did much better in the second debate, pretty well in third, pretty well in the fourth. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And so it's hard to tell, you know, with those polls in the debate. It's certainly the first debate helped Kennedy, but it could be two, three, and four helped Nixon as well, and they even up, or it could have just been the way the campaign goes. I'm going to talk about a few events that have nothing to do with the debates that happened in 1960 and people don't talk about because they're focused on the debates. One of them I already mentioned is that recession. For Nixon's part in his memoirs later in life, any you know statement that Kennedy won the election of 1960 because of the debates 
is overstated. He does think there's certain states he could have worked harder in. There are some factors we'll talk about. But he doesn't think the debates are in. And he could be right. Um, it does seem like, though, sometimes people answer two different questions. Like I say, do, did the debates affect the 1960 election or did they in and of themselves turn the 1960 election? I think that's two different things being framed as one sometimes because the actual debate event, I mean, it had to have a little boost for the Kennedy campaign. I mean, one thing I know is that um, Southern governors who hadn't endorsed Kennedy yet do so after the TV debates. Well, obviously – it's not so much that Southern governors love watching debaters on TV. It's just you can take this guy more seriously, take the ticket more seriously. And winning the South is one of those unstated factors that helps Kennedy in 1960. It sounds a little odd because right after that, Democratic tickets are going to start losing the South. But Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, even though they run as uncommitted, they, they, he ends up getting the electoral votes of Mississippi and Alabama, where there's uncommitted um, Democratic electors there. Georgia's one of uh, the Kennedy campaign's best states in 1960. That's very little to do with his debating performance. Poll-wise, it's tight. Only three times is a candidate beyond the three-point margin of error. And once it's Nixon and twice it's Kennedy. In August, it's, it's, it's Nixon. In August, it's 50% Nixon, 44% Kennedy. The race is even in September. It's 49-46 Kennedy beginning in October. You know, for every good thing that's going to lead you to think that Nixon's going to win, for instance, Republicans have just won two elections in a row and blew out the Democrats in 52 and 56, or that Khrushchev visits the United States and Nixon appears with him and has the famous kitchen debate where he kind of shows that he can take on the Soviet leader. You also have the fact that Democrats have, as a party have a better registration and they've won six out of eight of these debates. And you get that economic factor. You have debate three where as a result of Nixon really having to hit all 50 of those states and candidates wanting to travel, the network is arranged to have it virtual. And you get to what's not talked about a lot, right? It's like the last person to go to the moon. Who cares about the fourth debate between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon? Oh, well, and it's kind of true. Um, I actually think the second debate is pretty decisive. Obviously, the first is important. The second debate, I did a podcast called Navy Blue Nixon, where we talk about the reemergence of Nixon in that second debate. Uh, otherwise, he might have really blown the election. Or we wouldn't be debating at all if debates matter, right? Mr. Nixon earlier indicated that he would defend Kimoy and Matsu. I think the fourth debate is important as well. It's on foreign policy. And with hindsight, with the hindsight of knowing that one of the first things is going to hit the Kennedy administration is Bay of Pigs, an invasion of Cuba. Against pescadores and Pomosa, which is part of the Eisenhower policy. It all becomes really interesting. And both candidates have been receiving briefings that right now they're training some anti-Castro rebels. Kennedy decides to make it a position that we should intervene in Cuba. Now, I don't know what Senator Kennedy suggests when he says that we should help those who oppose the Castro regime, both in Cuba and without. But I do know this, that if we were to follow that recommendation, that we would lose all of our friends in Latin America, we would probably be condemned in the United Nations, and we would not accomplish our objective. I know something else. It would be an open invitation for Mr. Khrushchev to come in, to come into Latin America, and to engage us in what would be a civil war, and possibly even worse than that. 
This is something that Nixon, at least to hear Nixon describe it in his memoirs, for the first time he's actually personally mad at a political opponent. This, as he felt, was a violation of the intelligence that had been given him. He also felt it put him in an ironic and uncomfortable position of having to then argue against the position because to protect the what was going on in this secret operation that would become Bay of Pigs where soldiers are right now being trained in Honduras, he has to come out and take a position in 1960, Nixon does, that that's irresponsible. On the other hand, you really get the sense that even if he was forced into it, this is kind of a great position for Nixon. In fact, Kennedy starts getting attacked by some of the media that normally loves him. New York Post says, uh, I really don't know what further demagoguery is possible on this subject than what Kennedy has done in on the Cuba issue, other than saying that he's going to send... Pierre Salinger or his brother over there. See, they know that this is going to be a very difficult thing to pull off. Walter Lippmann says, Kennedy is a human, subject to error, but error he did. Lippmann's a fan. James Reston says, Kennedy made the worst blunder of his campaign. Franklin Roosevelt said in 1936 that that generation of Americans had a rendezvous with destiny. I believe in 1960 and 61 and 2 and 3, we have a rendezvous with destiny. And I believe it incumbent upon us to be the defenders of the United States and the defenders of freedom. Kennedy attacks Nixon for saying to Khrushchev that color TV development was as important as a rocket thrust. I think rocket thrust is just as important. He said that Eisenhower and Nixon were losing ground in the Middle East and Latin America. He doesn't know it, but that's something that's going to make Eisenhower very, very mad. We were losing ground to the Soviets. Middle Middle East and Latin America are looking to the Soviets, not U.S. Nixon fires back. American prestige will be as high as America's spokespeople allow it to be. A clear implication. He talks about the progress in the field of slum clearance and the like. We find four times as many projects undertaken and completed in this administration and in the previous one. Anybody that says America has been standing still for the last seven and a half years hasn't been traveling in America. He's been in some other country. Let's get that straight right away. JFK is out there dragging down America, saying America is in second place. How far can we get when our spokespeople are doing that? That's the kind of attack that you could imagine hearing today from a candidate. It's always the problem with the opposition party, right? You're attacking, it can always be easily channeled to, you keep attacking America. The debates were watched by 70 million people. They're a huge success. And the Kennedy's team... Certainly fell. No matter what debates we might have today, Kennedy's team certainly felt that they were the advantage to them. If for no other reason, they were free media. They knew Nixon had more money in the war chest. The Kennedy's family rich. But in terms of donors and the like, Nixon has more in the war chest. He is going to unleash a big TV campaign last two weeks of the election. Kennedy's not always going to be able to challenge that. If there's some kind of distortion What's the opportunity to take his case to the people? He needs another debate. Plus, there's something else. They're pretty sure Eisenhower's going to get on the campaign trail. He hasn't so far, and they've made an issue of it. But they're pretty sure Eisenhower's going to get on the campaign trail. What Kennedy doesn't know is that Ike is quite rattled by JFK's recent attacks on his administration. And health or not, and we're going to talk about this in a bit, but he wants to hit back. So... Prior to the fourth debate between the two candidates, which had been scheduled, the Kennedy team asks for a fifth, and negotiators do meet. Democratic and Republican representatives meet. The key ones are Fred Schreiber and Leonard 
Reinch. Schreiber for Nixon, Reinch for Kennedy. The meetings are reported in the LA Times, so people know that these talks are going on. Um, Nixon does say that a vice president's time is hard to schedule, but he certainly doesn't want to appear afraid. Um, What about, he says, expanding the fourth debate? Let's make it a two-hour debate. I've always wanted a two-hour debate. It's hard to answer those questions in one and a half minutes. Let's have five minutes to answer. I think what he's trying to imply is that somebody like a Kennedy, you know, does well on TV when the answers are really quick, but he can't explain himself. So that's his response. Salinger calls the extended debate a tricky device to avoid having a debate closer to the election. And so when that's thrown out, Kennedy's team is not thrilled with this idea. What they want is to either get that last debate closer to election day or have a a fifth debate. So you see newspaper stories now, though, that go out that say Kennedy refuses to extend debate, which doesn't look good for him. On the other hand, Nixon's refusing to agree to a fifth debate so far, which doesn't look good for him either. Nixon's team makes another suggestion. In the fourth debate, let's add an extra hour. We'll make that fourth hour, that first hour, for the vice presidential candidates. So it's actually Nixon in 1960 that becomes the first to suggest the idea of a vice presidential debate on television. And I think I know why. Um, Kennedy, they know, is a good debater, so why not take him out of the field for an hour? Johnson probably isn't that good of a debater. We never know. Things can be surprising, as we know from future TV debates. And I think that Nixon's team think that Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., who's the vice presidential candidate, is going to be a future ambassador, really well-polished, is going to come off very well in that. JFK negotiating through Pierre Salinger lets the uh, Nixon team know that they do not want to say no to a VP debate. They just don't think it replaces a fifth debate. Let's do that at a different time the way it's done now. JFK also has to issue a statement saying, I'm not refusing to extend the time of the fourth debate. I just want to have a fifth debate. JFK's team makes it clear. He thinks that there will be deceptions and ads coming out at the end, and he wants to be able to correct distortions. They can't agree. So on the day the fourth debate happens, Kennedy actually wires Nixon and challenges him directly to a fifth debate. Nixon's asked about it in the studio. Well, we may be able to negotiate something, he tells reporters. He's been told by his aides, don't say no to a fifth debate. You don't know how the fourth debate goes. And even though Nixon feels pretty good about his performance in this fourth debate, attacking Kennedy on Cuba, being able to call him reckless and irresponsible, you know, reminding Kennedy that there's treaties. You have an OAS treaty in Bogota, 1948, that says we can't interfere It's dangerous and irresponsible, reckless. He uses all these words both in the debate and in the newspapers. So Nixon feels pretty good about the debate, but he doesn't know until the next day, and so he doesn't want to say no. When he finds out the next day that it's not a disaster, Nixon loses some interest in scheduling a fourth, but the campaigns do meet. Kennedy now has an issue and issues a statement. Only Mr. Nixon stands in the way. It's difficult to understand why Mr. Nixon wants to cut off debate days before the election. So here in the first election with TV debates, you have already the beginning of TV debate negotiations. Kennedy uses this issue in the press. In the New York Herald, they say, Mr. Kennedy thinks he has the better of this, whether Nixon refuses or not. So Nixon is forced to respond. And 
on Sunday, October 23rd. He writes to Kennedy, Unbiased observers had said, in our last debate, the same ground was covered. Some questions are repeated. And, he suggests, let's have a debate on Cuba only. What should be done about Cuba? Nixon's smart here. Kennedy's having trouble with the position that he took. And Nixon thinks he knows this issue better in any case. And it has nothing to do with the economy or some bad issues um, for the incumbents. Nixon says, here we have a clear-cut difference in positions. The people are entitled to know what each of us thinks so that they can make an intelligence choice. Kennedy responds, I still find it impossible to understand why Mr. Nixon wants to limit a debate to one subject when there are so many problems facing America. Why not, he says, discuss domestic issues? Why not discuss what's going on in the Middle East and Africa? Classic, try to frame the battle to good ground for your own, right? And he also attacks Nixon for his whole conduct during these fifth debate negotiations. He would rather debate with a mimeograph machine than face-to-face. Then he finally says, I plan to appear and I'll answer any questions that the panel wants to ask. So that's the 23rd. On October 25th, the campaigns meet in the Statler Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. This is Schreiber. This is Reinch. At this point, all the reporting of the negotiations is having its effect on Nixon, and they're seeing if they can work something out. And there's a problem. Nixon's going to be in one state. Kennedy's going to be in another. Okay, we'll do another virtual debate. The problem is now, from the TV network's point of view, they cannot put that together in this short of a time frame. So the network committee to this response says, no, uh, why don't you go with the original format and we will do another debate? In a sense, negotiations end there. There's no further, you know, the Democrats say that, yes, they'll do that debate. The Republicans do not answer on the 26th to the 27th, the 28th. Finally, the Democratic negotiator, Leonard Reich, it's an old media hand from Georgia, and he's he's advised Roosevelt. He's behind some of uh, one of uh, Roosevelt's big speech in 1944 about follow the dog, which really uh, you know helped him. That was Reich behind it. Now he's advising Kennedy, and he says obviously the vice president's negotiating in bad faith. This angers Fred Schreiber, who issues a statement that absolutely this is not true. The Kennedy team are more interested in debating about debates than debating. And Schreiber also says there will be no more negotiations until Reinch apologizes for the comments made, you know, accusing them of bad faith. The Kennedy team makes it clear there'll be no apologies. And the idea of a fifth debate in 1960 pretty much ends there. But the observance of a new phenome in American politics, debate negotiations through the media, is very apparent. So there you have it. I mean, the fifth debate that never was partially ruined because of virtual system, which was just harder to set up in those days, could not be arranged. And in looking back at, you know, most of the standard now for presidential debates is three, and sometimes there's two, and in 1980, there was one. So, you know, looking back of the argument of not having a fifth debate and being like a chicken is uh, seems pretty silly with time. But it was still a live issue then. I think there's just a few things to talk about with 1960, just so 
there there tends to be a focus on all of these debates, like how important they are. And um, I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. I think you have to look at a couple of things. Some we talked about, that small recession, which really uh, just affects a few quarters, but it affects it right at the wrong time in 1960. Two things that hurt. Nixon's side. One is the mink coat riot in Texas. And, and, and it's the larger issue of putting Lyndon Johnson on the ticket, securing certain southern states, but also some of the reaction to Lyndon Johnson and some of the reaction to the most ultra-right people in the South actually helped the Democratic ticket in a way that hasn't been explored. The, the biggest incident being that mink coat riot, which may have helped Help turn Texas. So I talked about it with Tom Oliphant, who I had on the show in 2017. They were coming into their own in Texas. It hadn't turned Republican yet. It wouldn't for another generation. But it was starting to. And there's no question it was nip and tuck all the way through the election. Last Friday before the election broke, mm-hmm. after Johnson's celebrated uh, train trip through, I think, seven of the 11 Confederate states, very successful trip, by the way. Uh, he comes back to Dallas for a dinner at the uh, lovely Adolphus Hotel. And there was a right-wing Republican congressman in Dallas who had some, was a little infamous just before the assassination because the same thing happened at the same hotel with Adlai Stevenson. His name was Bruce Alger. He had a crowd of demonstrators some of them women in mink coats, by the way, <laughs> uh, yelling and screaming at Johnson and his wife, including throwing some things and in a couple cases spitting. Johnson, being no dummy, uh, made his entrance through the lobby of the hotel just as slow as he could make it, which made the visual impact of the demonstrators that much greater. And it was a colossal story in Texas for the next three days. And uh, people from Texas, whose memories we encountered, uh, felt very strongly that that's what nudged Kennedy over the top in Texas. I think the margin was 40-something thousand votes, and people are still trying to prove it was fraud, but they haven't yet. Yeah, you get that a lot. (laughs) Uh, well, uh, you know, you gotta you gotta be willing to shoulder the burden of proof, just mm-hmm. like prosecutors at the time. And if you can come up with the goods, God bless you. But if you can't, you gotta at least acknowledge that you don't have the evidence. 
but the cons- the political consensus is that that extremely ugly incident in the Adolphus Hotel may have tipped a close election Kennedy's way in Texas. Is there a sympathy for him after this? That's basically what it came down well, to. Don't be rude. Uh, and what happened um, in the Adolphus Hotel with regard to Texas is magnified several times on the other side with regards to African Americans. When you look at what Kennedy and his brother did for Martin Luther King and the clink in Georgia compared to what Nixon didn't do. The other is um, really the failure to utilize Dwight Eisenhower during the campaign. Some of it's arrogance. There are sources who say that Nixon aides were like, look, we want him to make sure Khrushchev is held down and that he doesn't blow anything up here. Other than that, that's all we want from him. That Nixon wanted a win on his own terms and didn't want to be seen as winning because Eisenhower was pulling him. But towards the end of the campaign, he's certainly willing to do that. And in fact, they plan appearances in Philadelphia, Minneapolis, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. Um, And maybe Eisenhower gets to Nixon and says, you know, can you please, we know that he wants to campaign. Eisenhower certainly wants to get out there. Eisenhower's doctor, Snyder, says, look, I know he wants to do this, and he won't listen to me. Can you please do something about it? He says to Nixon. So Nixon says, at least you know, in his memoir, we have Nixon saying, I talked to Eisenhower. I opened the discussion with some lame reasons why he shouldn't campaign. You know, the president was confused. I know he was puzzled by my conduct. Um, definitely Nixon feels that in Illinois and Missouri, states that were really close, appearances by Eisenhower would have helped the election. The Kennedy team was certainly afraid of Eisenhower being unleashed in a greater fashion. So I think just, you know, the general opinion of, uh, of Americans of how the Cold War was going, the economy, Eisenhower's inability to appear significantly for Nixon, and in some specific states, you know, Lyndon Johnson being put on the ticket and the Mink Coat Riot, um, helping in Texas, a very important state, or other factors that really have nothing to do with television debates that helped determine what was really a very close election between candidates competing for some of the same voter groups in different states. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There we got the Patreon patreon.com slash mhcbuyp mhcbuyp drafting johnson the special episode that you get please you know support us if you can um if not just you know spread the word about my history can beat up your politics give us a good review talk to people do what you can Uh, i'm on twitter at at my hist M-Y-H-I-S-T. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try to do what I can. I'm working on a, a, a bunch of uh, campaign stories that we can hopefully get done before the election. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. 
My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.